Good morning, everyone. It is wonderful to see your faces, and I wish we could see you guys that are online, but I know that many of you are um, logged in with us now, and uh, really trust that God meets with you this morning. Who's never been to a prayer meeting before? In fact, let me put the other way around. Who's been to a prayer meeting before? So most people here. I want to say it's not as scary as it sounds. You don't have to have a theology degree to be able to come to a prayer meeting or participate in a prayer meeting. In fact, it's the one meeting that we see in the book of Acts that uh, we see over and over again, almost more than any other thing. And it's one of the marks, I think, of the church that we gather together for prayer. And so um, we have two prayer meetings, Ignite, which is the first Wednesday of the month in the evening, and Unite, which is the third Monday of the month in the morning. The idea being that if it's difficult for you to get out in the evening, then it's probably easier for you to get out in the morning. If it's difficult for you to get out in the morning and in the evening, you probably need to sort your life out a little bit so that you can get to one of the prayer meetings. So um, my name is Rob. I'm one of the elders here at Will of Life, and it's a great privilege to be with you. And uh, this morning, I'm preaching on redeeming sexuality. And I want to pray as I get to that. This is a word for all of us because we are all sexual beings. From the moment that we are born, amazingly enough, we are. It is part of our makeup. It is how God designed us. And so it's something that we need to understand. And uh, because we are fallen and broken and live in a fallen and broken world, our sexuality is needed redeeming as well. And then even for those of us that are saved, um, there is moments in our lives where we have messed up sexually or been messed up sexually that we need to invite Christ in to come and redeem as well. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the wonder of being able to come to you, Lord God, with such a confidence that you know everything about us. Um, we're so grateful, Lord God, that um, you love us unconditionally. And uh, you've proved this by sending your son to die for us. There is nothing that uh, we have done that his love does not cover. And so we come this morning um, with, with grateful hearts, ready, Lord, though, ready to repent, Lord, if there's areas of our lives that um, we have kept from you, that have um, drifted into sin and bondage. Lord, we want to break that this morning in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So Philip Yancey, in the introduction to his book on the very first page, and I'll tell you the name of the book in a moment, um, tells a story that was recounted to him by a friend, where he, puts, he writes it in the, the story. And it goes like this. This is a friend speaking. He said, a prostitute came to me in wretched straits, homeless, sick, unable to buy food for her very young daughter. Through sobs and tears, she told me that she had been renting out her daughter to men interested in kinky sex. She made more renting out her daughter for an hour than she could earn on her own in a night. She had to do it, she said, to support her own drug habit. I could hardly bear hearing her sordid story. For one thing, it made me legally liable. I'm required to report cases of child abuse. I had no idea what to say to this woman. At last, I asked if she had ever thought of going to a church for help. I'll never forget the look of pure, naive shock that crossed her face. Church? She cried. Why would I ever go there? I already feel terrible about myself. They'd just make me feel worse. Paul writing to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, a few of the verses from verse 12 onwards, he writes this. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. 
Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will raise us up by His power. Verse 19, you are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. I'm going to start this morning by telling you what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to try and persuade you that the Bible teaches that any sex outside of marriage is a sin. I'm assuming that actually you know that in your heart of hearts, that, that, that if you've engaged in it and, the, and there's a sense of guilt that has come to you or you've thought about it and you, you, you try and push your way past it, but you know in your heart of hearts whatever the name is for what it is that a person does outside of marriage, whether it's fornication or adultery or homosexuality or any number of names the Scripture gives to the different acts that we can um, commit that are not sex within marriage. Um, we recognize that the only legitimate context for sex, as Matt preached last week, is marriage. It was established in Genesis right at the beginning of God's revelation to us and reaffirmed in the Gospels when Jesus taught and actually quote, quoted what was said in Genesis, that a union is only a marriage in the eyes of God, despite what governments legalize, when it is a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman. Can I say that again? A union is only a marriage in the eyes of God, despite what governments legalize, when it is a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman. God has ordained that the union of ultimate Permanence alone is the legiti legitimate domain of ultimate intimacy. You can tell me, Rob, I don't believe the Bible. Well, I think the Bible is stupid, but what you cannot tell me is the Bible is not clear. Any sex outside of marriage is called a sin. I'm also not going to try and persuade you today how destructive sin is to you, to the community around you, and, uh, and to your relationship with God. The fact is that it's because of our sin that Christ suffered that brutal death upon the cross. He wasn't chosen as a man amongst all of us to go to the cross. It was God himself who gave up his life to die on the cross. And if that doesn't reveal to you how profoundly and infinitely terrible sin is, then I don't know what I could do to persuade you. I'm also not going to teach you on practical ways that you as a single or as a married person can combat sexual temptation. I've taught on that before, and I'll actually be sticking up a link at the end for you to be able to download my notes from that preach from a while ago if you want to do that. You might say, well, thanks a lot, Rob. What are you preaching on? I want to preach on how Jesus wants to redeem our fallen and broken sexuality. How you can find healing and wholeness and renewed purpose in your sexuality when you've messed up sexually or been messed up sexually. And the reason is because the world is broken when it comes to what it means to be a sexual being. Hookups. What can you say? I mean, is there, is there anything to describe the, 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 how beyond the pale that is, how, how far beyond the plan of God that is that two people that don't even know each other get together for something called sex and then walk away from each other? The, the, the growth and the proliferation of porn and adultery in our world shows that it is broken. Redemption, to redeem something means to gain or regain possession of something in exchange for payment. 
And um, this very idea is expressed by Paul at the end of that passage I read, when in verse 20 he says, you were bought with a price. That redemption price, which was the life of Christ, him dying on the cross, that was the price that bought us back again, body, soul, and spirit, or body, soul, and sexuality. Our, our, our very bodies have been bought by Christ again, including all of our desires, natural desires that were fallen and in, in opposition to God have been ransomed, have been redeemed by Him. And that means the gospel, and I've really got two points this morning, that the gospel is a call to embrace our sexuality. It's not a call to kind of detach it as if it's not a part of us, nor is it a, a, a call to see our, our sexuality, and by that I mean our desires for um, for for sexual intimacy with people, not to see it as something evil and wicked that needs to be kept away from us. And the reason why Paul actually has to write this letter to the church in Corinth is because they were thinking like typical Greeks of their day, who loved the soul but despised the body. Greek philosophers taught that one of the things that we need to seek is liberation of the soul from the body. That's, that was kind of that moment when the body was no longer influencing our soul or we were separate from the body was the moment that we needed to seek to get to. And that led to two major errors. The fact that they saw the soul and the body as two separate entities with this body, this lower entity that only had to do with biological functions. On the one side was seeing everything that had to do with the body as evil just like tempting us away from the spiritual things of God. So our desire for food or even our desire for sleep or for pleasure or for sexual intimacy, all of those things were regarded as evil and, and should be starved and, and like harshly ruled over. On the other side was the thinking that it, it didn't matter. Verse 13, Paul says, and I think the quotes are wrong here. Michael Eaton suggests they go over this whole verse because he's quoting what has been said by the Corinthians to him. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will one day destroy both. The body is destined to perish, they say. What does it matter? This is, this is not going with me, this whole thing. Who cares what I do with this? It's the soul that matters. Can you see that, Rob? It's the soul that matters. The body doesn't matter. And in the same way that the whole point of food is to feed the body, and the whole point of body is to eat the food, it's, it's just a thing that happens. You, Paul, after all, you taught that it doesn't matter what you eat. That doesn't make you clean or unclean. And so they come to this conclusion. So all things are lawful for me. There's actually, I can do whatever I want. And Paul actually agrees with that in part and disagrees. See, Paul is the most radical grace preacher I think the world has ever known. He preached the fact that we are no longer under the law. We have been set free from Christ, and we're obligated to nothing anymore. We are saved because of His finished work. We are kept because of His finished work. You're not under a law. You don't have to submit to the rules of men and this list and that list. We're free. But, says Paul, and he quickly jumps in to put a but on the end of it. Not all things are helpful. And he goes on, and he goes on to say that, it's not freedom, though, if you've given up your freedom and you've come under addiction and you've come under the bondages that can so often bring us. And that's because how we fulfill our natural desires, whether it's the appetite for food or appetite for sex, affects our soul and affects the rest of our life. And nothing has a greater impact than how we satisfy the appetite of sex. I was listening to a podcast the other day by Rob Wolf, which was, why quitting junk food is so hard. <laughs> it's not because I'm battling with junk food. I was trying to get some information to help my friends. And um, he's speaking from a non-Christian evolutionary self-help point of view. There's no gospel in this. There's no looking to God. 
But I believe God was showing me something of this. And so just track with me for a moment. He said that the marketing guys, um, the food industry marketing guys have studied us and they, they, they know what works. I'll quote him. He says, these people are making these foods addictive. They fully get it and they are using it. They're not using it for our benefit. They're not using it for the benefit of society at large. They're using it for the benefit of their bottom line to sell more products. And he goes on to say that the junk food industry's marketing and products create encounters for us or provide encounters for us, and I quote him again, that spin the dopamine centers in the brain. I think everybody knows what dopamine centers are now. They, we've, we've heard about it so often. It rewards us and are addictive. And he goes and he says this, and this is the key. He says, and if we are surprised by that process or feel bad um, about it, it's kind of crazy because it's not your fault if you feel yourself entrapped in a world of hyper-palatable foods. And I don't just suggest that people roll over and expose their belly to the world and let the world have their way with you, but you need to understand that this is your basic biological wiring. In other words, a natural desire for food has got hijacked. And the first step to freedom is becoming aware of these other forces that are at work and at play with you. So on your way home today, when that McDonald's billboard comes up, be aware there are other forces at work. The second is being aware of how eating badly messes up your body. And there's so much literature now that if, if you are living off refined carbs and sugars and junk food, do not get me started on that stuff. It's not just going to cause your body to change into shapes that you prefer you weren't changing into, but it's going to affect your moods. It's going to affect your energy. It's going to affect your intellectual stimulation. It, it has a profound effect on what we call that part of us, which is our part of our soul. The come to Jesus moment for the McDonald's addict is when they realize that their good food desires don't exist in neutral territory. It's not just your own thinking like, hmm, what should I have? And then you hear the McDonald's jingle in your mind, or you think about that sauce that they put on this or that or the next thing. And for some of us today, we need to recognize the same thing as regards sex. My sexual desire is good because it draws me into marriage. Number one, Martin Luther says that God uses lust to drive men to marriage. It's good. God puts it in us, and they're like, like there's something burning in my bones, baby. I, I need to do something about that. They're going to find me a woman, and I'm going to woo her, and she's going to marry me, and I'm going to satisfy this, this fire that's in my belly. Sex is good because it enables exclusive and unique intimacy in marriage. It gives to marriage this pinnacle place in our society. And it mean, it's the means by which we reproduce humanity. But it has been hijacked. Our sexuality has been hijacked. And that's because our journey from spiritual darkness into life in Christ has, has meant had, some of us have brought with us heavy baggage along the way. Stuff that happened to us before, things that we thought before we met Jesus, we haven't dropped them at the cross. We've actually carried them past. We live in a world amongst the people that have fallen like we were if we are believers. Isaiah says in Isaiah 6 verse 5, the prophet, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. And friends, we have an enemy called Satan who makes those um, food industry marking guys look like complete amateurs. Talk about creating a world where we are entrapped um, with hyperpalatable foods. And Paul is telling the Corinthians that what they do with their bodies actually affects their spiritual health. 
But that doesn't mean that their bodies, including their sexual desires, are evil. Instead, because our sexuality has been ransomed by Christ, we should regard it as good. And so, friends, I want you to take a completely different view to your sexuality. Don't think, oh, this desire in mind that leads me to, and whatever the sin is that you would put at the end of that thing, say, this wicked sexual desire. No, thank you, God, for my sexual desire. Thank you, Father, for making me a man or a woman with sexual desire. And I, and I affirm that it is a good thing. Thank you that while I used to be in slavery to the, these desires, I now have been set free. My sexual desire is a treasure kept for and being used to prepare me for marriage. It's a process of self-control where we don't give ourselves into sexual expression before marriage. It's actually a work of God, a preparation of God for our marriage. Thank you that as I walk in step with the Holy Spirit, He gives me the self-control that I need. This isn't an impossible battle. It isn't a, like, it's a, it's, it feels like it at times. I know to you it feels like it's impossible. It is not if we keep in step with the Holy Spirit. And actually what we begin to find is that our, our restraint in this area becomes an act of worship. That actually my, my choosing to subject my, sexual, my sexuality, my desire to God becomes a form of worship to God. You might say, Rob, what about those whose sexual appetite is towards people of the same sex? What about those that have given into temptation and fallen into sexual sin? Maybe it's you. What about those addicted to sexual immorality, pornography? Or what about those who, like the girl in the story that I told right at the beginning, have been victims of sexual abuse? I have to be honest, that story repulses me. I've actually left something out about that story because it's even worse than what I read to you. I want to scream at the mother. I want to grab that mother and I want to shake her and I want to scream at her. I want to find those men. I want to be like Liam Neeson and Taken and I want to, I want to shoot them and kill them. I do. Honestly, I do. A man can do that to a little girl. I, I have a desire for those person to be dead. I want to weep. For that little girl. And then I remember that Jesus didn't scream at me. He didn't shake me. He didn't kill me. So on the one hand, I'm repulsed. And the other hand, it's like these defibrillators have been put in my chest and they shock me into action again. The title of Philippians' book is, is What is So Amazing About Grace? And he starts with that story. See, grace in this context means it's the good news. It means that we don't get what we deserve because Jesus got it. We don't get what we deserve because Jesus got it. And that means that the mother in that story, the mother of the little girl, if she came to Jesus in saving faith with repentance, that her terrible sin would be placed on Jesus. If any of those men, as abominable as what they did was, came to Jesus in repentance and saving faith, their grotesque sin was laid on Jesus. And if that little girl, at some point in her life, came to Jesus in repentance and saving faith, the justice that she so richly deserves would have been spent 
on Jesus. So to be a Christian, to be a community of Christians, whether it's a community of our family or the community of, of the family church, means at a very fundamental level that we are the objects of grace and the carriers of that grace. And friends, that means that nothing you have done or I have done or nothing that has been done to you is irredeemable. Everything can be bought back again. Dallas Willard in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, says that to be able to walk in the, conditional, the unconditional love of Jesus that makes obedience to him natural, we must, and please listen to this, we must have no doubt that nothing irredeemable has happened to us or can happen to us on our way to our destiny in God's full world. Nothing irredeemable has happened to us. No matter what you've done, it's not irredeemable. You are not damaged goods. You are not to be cast out. It's, there, there's hope and there's recovery. It doesn't mean that we rationalize our sins or make excuse for it. It's not making friends with sin or being satisfied that it's hidden away. Who of us in good conscience could look at that little girl um, and just look the other way and say nothing happened? Our, our inner man recoils from such a thing. Sin is awful and it is always destructive. Paul in that same passage, I didn't read this, but says, Shall I, shall I then take the members of Christ, meaning, meaning my own body, and make them members with a prostitute? Never, he says. Never. Never. See, nothing is irredeemable. It's accepting, and I want to point this at you, that obviously it applies to all of us. It's accepting that the finished work of Jesus is fundamentally necessary in your life. That you literally needed and need a Savior. That your sin, in this instance that I'm talking about today, is sexual sin, but actually all sin cannot be paid off in installments of good behavior. That only God's own Son, that God Himself will be able to, uh, is, is enough, and it will be able to say when He's finished all that it is finished, that your sin has been paid for, that the justice that you deserve has been won for you. Nothing you have done is irredeemable. Nothing done to you, be it sexual abuse or rape or incest or anything, is irredeemable. That means that we come to God with our brokenness in our hands and we say, God, won't you help me? Some time ago we wrote a paper for the church, we said we uh, our, our title was "Will of Life Elders' Response to Sexual Immorality." We wanted to express to somebody that came along and said, "Look, I've, I I'm engaged in sexual immorality. I'm 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 fornicating or um, hooked to a, uh, pornography, or I've committed adultery, or in the case of this woman here in this story, what can I expect?" when I come to this church and to these elders and to this community, when I open my heart and reveal what it is that I've done. And the last paragraph of that paper, and I'm going to put a link up to that as well if you want to download that. We say this. Jesus was once told off by a Pharisee for letting a sexually immoral woman touch him by washing his feet with her kisses, tears, and hair. Jesus defended this woman and said that in spite of her sexual immorality, she knew something about forgiveness and love that the religious Pharisee hadn't yet grasped. Similarly, 
We believe that from morally broken lives can come poignant worship and spiritual sensitivity that will please God and instruct us all. Jesus once compared himself to a shepherd who rejoices more over the one lost sheep who is found than over the 99 who never wandered. We will seek to share his perspective and concern for people who lose their way. As the Father sent Jesus, so Jesus sends us to seek and to save whoever is lost. Would the worship team please come up? Guys, if you're watching online, we're going to actually take a bit of time now to break bread. And we're going to do a little bit of business amongst ourselves yeah, around this topic. And um, so in a, in a moment, we're going to sign off from you. If something that I've taught today has, um, has pierced your heart, if there's some situation from your past that has never been dealt with, a situation perhaps where you were a victim of sexual abuse, or perhaps you have been engaged in sinful sexual behavior, we want to invite you to come into full um, freedom from that and allow Christ to come and redeem what it is that you've been through. And so won't you use the, the prayer request function? Whatever you write, then they will obviously be dealt with in, in the highest confidence. But use that to reach out for help and say, I need to speak to somebody about this area. And uh, then someone will get a hold of you, somebody appropriate, will pray with you and lead you in a prayer of repentance or perhaps in a prayer of healing or both. And that you can receive the forgiveness of Christ. Let Him come and redeem your sexuality. That's what we're going to be doing here this morning. So I want to pray for you and release you guys now. And God bless you so we can just carry on here for a little bit more. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are so profoundly kind. Lord, we don't deserve this. All of us are that woman. All of us are those men separated and sinful and hostile to you. But you loved us so much that you sent your son that whoever believes in Him, not whoever does good things or learns things, or whoever believes in Him, that He is enough, that He is the only way, will not perish, will not face the consequences, the eternal consequences, the eternal wrath that that sin deserves, but instead will have eternal life. I pray for those, Lord God, that in our ranks this morning that are trapped, that they would be set free, that they would stop hiding this thing in their hand like this, Lord God, but with courage will come and open their hands before you and say, Jesus, can you redeem even this? In the other words, yes, my son. My daughter, yes, I can redeem that. In Jesus' name.